Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is actually a case I meant to cover in episode 29, but the more I dug into the main crime for this case, the more I found out about the killer's past, and I realized this needed to be a two-part episode. So we'll cover part one today. Part two will come tomorrow. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimesproductions.com. If you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Over 200 years ago, a man named Thomas Jefferson founded a university in Charlottesville, Virginia. He, along with James Madison and James Monroe, helped establish the original courses of study as well as its architecture. The school was open as a rival to the College of William and Mary's in Williamsburg, Virginia. This is a school that Jefferson attended and studied law from 1960 to 1967 before his famous involvement with the Revolution and the Declaration of Independence. When asked why he wanted to start a rival school, he said it was due to the strict religious teachings at the college and their dismissal of science. He wanted to create a public place of learning free from religion. Opened in 1819, the 1,135-acre campus at the University of Virginia has been called the Public Ivy in reference to its public status but Ivy League difficulty for admission. Many presidents, state governors, and successful CEOs are amongst the alumni of the University of Virginia. Sadly, this episode will not be about any of the great achievements by University of Virginia alumni, but instead it will focus on the life and senseless death of one of its students and the monster who preyed upon her and other college-aged girls in the area. This case, like a few we have covered, is one where, after the initial case is solved, investigators are going to take a long look at the suspect's past and realize there are a lot more crimes they prove he was involved in, and many that they believe he was involved in. I'm going to cover the most recent case first, then we'll break down the timeline of known and suspected crimes of the suspect in this case. On September 13, 2014, Hannah Graham, an 18-year-old student at the University of Virginia, was out doing what college kids do, attending parties to socialize and have a good time. It was her sophomore year, and Hannah had plans to attend a house party where alcohol would be readily available. Being under the age of 21 meant that getting alcohol at a bar or restaurant would be more difficult, but Hannah had just planned on attending the house party that night and then heading back home. Hannah texted her friends to tell them about her plans to attend the party, and they would later tell investigators that her texts got harder to understand as the night went on. They felt she had consumed enough alcohol to make her significantly impaired, and by 1 a.m., she had made the decision to leave the party she was at and planned to walk to another party. Her last text came through at 1.20 a.m., a text that stated she was trying to find the other party but was lost. She would never be heard from again. Five weeks later, on October 18th, searchers located her remains on an abandoned property. Her death was ruled a homicide, but due to the condition of the body, the exact cause of death could not be determined. 
It was the only bit of good news from the story. The suspect was already in custody, and police were hard at work preparing to bring justice for Hannah and several other women they found in his past. So as we get into the investigation, we're going to see there are some discrepancies. This is another one of those cases that was very widely covered in the news. And as a result, there's a multitude of articles out there, and some of them have differing information. I tried to grab as much information from this beginning part of the investigation from the actual affidavit for the arrest of the suspect, as I tend to find those have the most clear and concise investigative notes as to what happened but I do sometimes find either more information but oftentimes conflicting information on uh, articles online so a lot of this is going to be broken down as I found in the affidavit and again I think there's going to be a couple points here that don't coincide with some of the other reports but Hannah's friend reported her missing on Sunday, September 14th, after no one had heard from her or seen her since the 1.20 a.m. text from Saturday, September 13th. She missed a volunteer shift on Saturday morning and did not respond to any texts, calls, and did not return to her apartment. Friends and family were concerned as this was out of character for the normally dependable and reachable Hannah. They stated she had no medical or mental health issues and had been making plans for the future. The reports state that an immediate search for Hannah was launched and the search was quickly bolstered by assistance from state and federal law enforcement. So again, this is probably the, the third, at least third if not fourth case we've covered where there's a missing college-aged student somewhere around that, that age. And we've talked about the varying responses from law enforcement. And we will talk later in this case too about some of the other, the other cases related to this one. But We've had cases like Drew Sedin's that it's almost immediate that people realize. It's within a few hours, I should say, that she's missing. Now, this one's a little bit different because she's going to go missing. The timeline seems a little confusing because of the timing of the fact that it's early morning. But basically, she's not going to be reported missing until Sunday. Yet, the last time anybody had contact with her was 1 a.m. Saturday morning. So there's going to be over 24 hours between the time that anybody has had contact with her until she's reported missing. So that's actually going to probably work in the favor of an immediate response from law enforcement because it's not that issue of she was out drinking with some friends and kind of got lost or whatever, maybe caught a ride home, maybe met up with a guy, went back to his place. It's not one of those situations where police are more apt to say, just give it a few hours or a day and maybe it'll resolve itself. We've already had that time period before she's even reported missing. So it's much more likely that the panic level's high at this point. Friends and family, this is saying it's not like Hannah checked all the boxes that we've talked about before and these missing college students, the suicidal issues, mental health issues, medical issues. And again, we fall back on a lot of these these women that seem to go missing, whether it was Drew Sedine or uh, Annie Lee. They're very dependable, hardworking students, slash, and a lot of times it's athletes that, again, it's just this is completely out of the norm for them. So when they go missing, it's going to be noticed and the police are responding immediately with this search. So 
Investigators would use a combination of security footage and eyewitnesses to piece together a timeline of events and find out what happened to Hannah. The last text message Hannah sent was to a friend at 1 a.m. saying she got stuck down. Now, I'm going to spend more time than I want to admit trying to figure out what getting stuck down means, and this is 2014, so we're still about 10 years removed from this being, if this is type some type of slang, I've never heard it before, and so maybe somebody out there does know what she's trying to say, otherwise it's possible too that she's mistyping stuff because she's impaired, um, so maybe it's stuck down and has something to do with where she tried to get alcohol at a bar and she got ID'd or she wouldn't even be let into the bar because she was only 18. It's possible. It's also possible, again, that it means something I don't know or that it's just gibberish because she's she's inebriated at this point. And I know this doesn't jive with what reports said of her saying at 120 she sent her last text saying that she was trying to get to another party and that's another thing about this timeline is it talks about how she was only going to go to this house party and go home there's another article that says she was going to go to this house party and then decided to go to a different house party but got lost then there's part other articles out there that say that she was out at a house party then she joined her friends at some at a bar and restaurant for some drinks and then she went to another house party and then she was trying to find out so again i guess those details don't really matter eventually we'll get into a more specific timeline where police are able to locate her on security cameras and follow her movement so all we know is that prior to 1 a.m on the the night that she goes missing she's consumed some alcohol whether this be at these house parties with friends whatever it may be that doesn't, I guess, really matter what was happening before, but what we do know is that she's now out wandering uh, the streets of Charlottesville at 1 o'clock in the morning, and she's inebriated and alone. Now, by canvassing the area, uh, investigators are able to determine a better time frame after they talked with local businesses, mainly bars, as these would have been still open around 1 a.m., in doing so, they found a bouncer from an Irish pub who stated he saw Hannah walk by him once, turn around, and then walk back past him. He could tell she was impaired, and he asked her if she needed any help. Hannah told him no, she was fine, and didn't need any help, and walked away. Investigators were able to use this statement to determine a direction of travel and a rough time frame. They could then watch security cameras in the area during that time frame to see if any of them captured Hannah and determine what happened to her. So this is kind of that... Finding one college student on a security camera footage in a rough time frame of around 1 o'clock in the morning on a Friday night into a Saturday morning is going to be pretty tough to do. But if you can get one person who positively knows that they saw Hannah walking in a specific area of town around a specific time, then you can really start looking at, at cameras and ruling out, you know, watch the 15 minutes where she should have walked by a camera okay she didn't go that way and then once you start finding these security cameras and seeing this footage then you can really start to narrow down this time frame and they're going to do this and they're going to locate a camera at a nearby gas station that captured had a walking by at 12:55 a.m before she broke into a jog as she passed beneath the railway bridge 
Then there was a total of three more cameras that captured Hannah walking in the area around the time of her last text message. The cameras showed that Hannah appeared to have trouble maintaining a straight line while she walked. Then came the bombshell eyewitness statement. Two people walking from bar to bar in the area saw Hannah, obviously impaired, walking down the sidewalk. Then they saw a large male, roughly 6 foot 2 and 270 pounds, a man they had seen walking alone earlier in the evening, walk past Hannah. The male did a quick turnaround and ran up to Hannah and put his arm around her. The witness told investigators that she made a comment to this man about Hannah not knowing him, to which he told the witness to hush. Now before we get into what happened to Hannah, let's discuss this suspect and what police are going to learn about this monster. And actually before we do that, we'll just I'll just break that down. It was kind of difficult to write it out in a way that people would visualize this. There's actually a lot of videos online you can still find that they were there's one that actually captures Hannah actually captures the suspect walking by. He's he's close in on the camera. He's he's closest on the, the I should say the side of the street where the camera is. So he's walks by close to the camera. And then you see Hannah off kind of in the, the background of the camera shot walk by the opposite way. And then you see the suspect walking behind her about 20 feet or so trying to catch up with her. So what these witnesses are describing at that moment is actually captured on a security camera. And when I mentioned that these witnesses saw this guy earlier, he's it's actually, we'll get into it in part two, there's actually going to be a lot of witnesses seeing this guy uh, that evening and and some very inappropriate behavior that he had that evening prior to him meeting Hannah. So it's one of those things where they set off just to find out if they have Hannah you know, getting into a vehicle somewhere or uh, leaving with somebody from a bar or, or walking off in some direction and they are able to not only find Hannah on these videos and find eyewitnesses that can see the interaction between Hannah and the suspect, they're gonna get a lot of information about what happened that night without having Hannah even around to tell them. And that's what's gonna push their investigation. Um, and we'll, like I said, we'll, again, we'll get into that in part two because we have a lot to discuss about this suspect before we get there. So the suspect's going to be identified as Jesse Leroy Matthew Jr. He was born on December 14, 1981. There's not a lot of information about his upbringing, and the first evidence I could find of him on any radar was that in 2000, he joined the Liberty University football team. At the time, he was a 6'2", 215-pound defensive lineman. He redshirted his first year, and his hometown is listed as Charlottesville, Virginia. His first allegation of sexual assault would be the summer of 2000 before his redshirt football season. A 15-year-old girl attending a summer debate camp claimed that Jesse Matthews Jr. sexually assaulted her in a bathroom in one of the dorms on campus. She said she was walking back to her room when Matthew grabbed her by the arm and carried her into a bathroom. She fought back and was able to briefly escape the much larger suspect but he caught up with her and grabbed her around the neck and started to strangle her. She was able to bite his arm and his hand, and he let go and she was able to get free. She reported the incident to the Liberty Campus Police, and they apprehended Matthew, and she positively identified him as a suspect. Against her 
objections, the chief of police then made her ride in the back of his car with the suspect to their station to take a statement from her. She was made to write out her statement on two separate occasions, and then police compared the two and accused her of making up the story when minor details were different. One of the officers asked Matthew for his autograph while this was going on, telling another officer it would be worth a lot of money someday. Police then told her that Matthew denied being in that dorm that day because it was an all-girls dorm, but the 15-year-old victim told police there was a camera and they should watch it and that would show Matthew entering the building. The police then stated Matthew admitted to being in the building, but their encounter was consensual and there wasn't enough evidence to prove otherwise. The police then demanded the 15-year-old strip down so they could take photos of her, something she did not consent to, and claimed would make no difference because she had no marks on her breast or genital region. The police threatened to charge her with filing a false police report unless she cooperated. She was then made to wash her hands in what she believed was an effort to get rid of any DNA from the attack, as she had told officers she dug her nails into the attacker in order to preserve his DNA. The victim was also told that this was her fault because she violated the dress code for the university by wearing pants in the dorms. She advised the police that the policy she signed did not have a dress code as it was a summer camp and didn't adhere to the strict dress code of the regular campus. Several other girls at the camp complained about Matthew and other males aggressively going after them while on campus and they were all remanded for their clothing choices and told they would be expelled from the camp if they followed through with reporting the crimes. As a result of the above case and many others, Liberty University was part of a lawsuit involving at least 12 women and girls who tried to report sexual assaults on campus and were silenced by police and or campus officials. The lawsuit was settled for an undisclosed amount in 2022 and the university states it has updated many policies, trainings, and installed improved security measures since the time of the alleged events. But back to our timeline, on October 17, 2002, during his junior year at Liberty, Jesse Matthew was accused of sexually assaulting another female on campus. By now, he was listed at 6 foot 2 and 250 pounds. The woman reported that Matthew forced himself upon her and sexually assaulted her. Matthew claimed the sex was consensual, and police found there were no witnesses and deemed there to be not enough evidence to prosecute. The school did expel Matthew, but this was more likely due to him admitting to premarital consensual sex than their belief that he committed a sexual assault. Now, I will take a break here. Um, Liberty University is a religious private university, so they obviously, at least back in the early 2000s, had some pretty strict uh, code of conduct policies for their students. I couldn't find the actual policies, just but just reading between the lines from the uh, attack on the 15-year-old girl and uh, some of the stuff I mentioned about the other girls and their clothing choices, my assumption is that girls were supposed to wear dresses because they couldn't wear pants, and it was pants, not even shorts. And I'm not saying that any of that is is acceptable in terms of saying because they were wearing the wrong article of clothing, this was their fault. I mean, that's the farthest from from the truth in that matter. But to me, it just seems like this university had some very, very strict rules, but at the same time, we're not even willing to look at the, se at the sexual assault 
accusations that were leveled. And we'll cover more of that later on in the kind of the recap part of this episode. But to get back on the timeline, after leaving Liberty University, Matthew attended Christopher Newport University from January 2003 to October 15, 2003. And during this time, three more crimes are going to happen. In July of 2003, 24-year-old Autumn Wind Day is going to go missing. She drove to a grocery store two miles from the CNU campus and was never seen again. Her car was found in the parking lot of the store, but her body has never been located. Now, there were a couple missing persons posters that I saw after this. I researched this case that said that she was seen leaving a hotel with an unidentified black male. And several of those posters would eventually have Matthew's picture on them, I think after links are made many years down the road. But I couldn't find much more on this case. And again, we'll discuss some of this stuff later, but just keeping in mind all the stuff that's going on around the universities that Matthew's attending. In the following month, in August of 2003, Matthew walks on to the CNU football team. In September of 2003, 31-year-old Sophie Mae Rivera goes missing from the same town as Autumn Day, and her body is never located. Also in September of 2003, Matthew is accused of sexual assault by another female. This allegation comes in around the same date Sophie Rivera goes missing, and five days after the allegations, Matthew quits the football team. And then in October of 2003, Matthew leaves CNU. Now we are going to skip forward a couple years, and on August 14, 2005, the body of an 18-year-old named Shelly Carson was found beaten to death. She had been riding her bike home from a friend's house in the early morning hours, and at 6 a.m. her lifeless body was found near a traffic circle. Her bike had been thrown in a nearby yard, and there were signs that Shelly had been sexually assaulted before she was killed via blunt force trauma to the head. The scene looked disorganized as if someone happened upon her and decided to attack her and then in a panic killed her. While this case isn't directly linked to Matthew in any evidentiary way, it does fit his MO of preying on younger women who are out alone at night and this occurred in Virginia Beach close to Matthew's last known location of Newport News. A month later, in September of 2005, a 26-year-old woman was walking home from a grocery store in Fairfax, Virginia, when she was grabbed from behind and drugged into a wooded area. She was raped and beaten, and then the suspect might have killed her, but a passerby heard the commotion and the suspect ran off. Roughly 10 years later, DNA taken from the scene of the sexual assault would match DNA from Jesse Matthew. So if we go back right now and look at the timeline we've got this case a terrible case in 2000 of the 15 year old girl that identifies jesse matthew jr as a a guy who assaulted her and he did grope her during this assault and obviously had plans to sexually assault her but she was able to get away and there's no charges from that due to a terrible investigation and a cover-up by the university and then in 2002 we have him attacking another female on the liberty campus which he's expelled for not because of the sexual assault but because 
he's there's he's not allowed to engage in premarital sex and that's going to cause him to leave in October 2012 to go to this Christopher Newport University in the beginning of 2003 and then in in the town surrounding CNU there's going to be these two women that go missing one in July of 2003 one in September of 2003 and the one in July of 2003 goes missing from a grocery store and I want to say the one in the in September 2003 went missing from a convenience store I want to say but very similar circumstances to this woman uh, in 2005 who's raped and then DNA is able to prove that Jesse Matthew was the attacker in that case so he's committed two known sexual assaults at Liberty University he's now suspected of abducting, killing, and hiding the bodies of two other women. He's also potentially involved on this eight, the death of this 18-year-old girl just based, again, on the method of operation, the fact that he's in the area at this time. It, again, every, everything fits his pattern of locating a lone female and beating her and sexually assaulting her and then in this case uh, killing her and and again all of these that aren't proven by dna are just alleged crimes that that matthew committed um unfortunately they've never found the bodies of autumn wind day or sophie rivera and there must not have been DNA left behind on Shelley Carson's case, or if there was, it's not linked to Matthew, but there was no mention in the articles about Shelley Carson about anybody being ruled out or matched on DNA. So, again, it's a lot of speculation. However, we are getting into the point where DNA has proven that he's involved in this uh, Fairfax, Virginia case, and then you've got two living witnesses to sexual assaults from back in his time at Liber Liberty University. However, the year's 2007, and he hasn't actually been charged with anything from the two at Liberty University because those were covered up. And although they have DNA in 2005 from this sexual assault in Fairfax, Virginia, he his DNA is not on file because he hasn't had to face any charges to this point. So he's going to get a permit to operate a taxi in the Charlottesville area in 2007. And on October 10th of 2009, a 23-year-old woman named Cassandra Morton disappeared from a neighborhood in nearby Lynchburg, Virginia. Her remains were located several weeks later by hikers on a nearby mountain, very near a retreat owned by Liberty University's president. And it's unknown if Matthew would have attended or known about this retreat during his time at Liberty, but it's definitely a noticeable connection. On October 17, 2009, a 20-year-old college student named Morgan Harrington went missing after a Metallica concert in downtown Charlottesville. She had attended the concert with three friends but needed to use the restroom during the opening act's performance. She must have gotten disoriented and ended up outside the venue and was denied re-entry to the concert. 
Her friends got a hold of her and she told them not to worry about her and she'd find a ride home. She was last seen hitchhiking on a bridge near the venue. Her purse with ID and cell phone were located in a parking lot on the UVA campus and her remains were discovered three months later on a remote farm just outside the city. She had been brutally beaten with several of her bones broken during the assault. She was sexually assaulted and then murdered. DNA recovered at the scene linked Harrington's sexual assault to the 2005 Fairfax, Virginia sexual assault, but police would run the DNA in CODIS and have it sitting in there with no matches for several years. So here we'll, we'll kind of take a pause in the timeline. We're actually not going to get to the rest of Hanagram's uh, investigation or any of the trials or other investigations involving this guy just because it's going to get too long at that point. That's why this is going to be a two-part episode. But this is where, when I originally heard this case, uh, I remember it from back in the, the time it came out, 2014. I guess I didn't follow any of the, the follow-up stuff afterwards. So when I was looking for cases to cover, I said, oh, yeah, I remember that girl in Virginia, the college girl that went that went missing, and then the guy got arrested and and I kind of said, oh, that'd be a case I could cover, and it would be a good one-episode coverage of just like Annie Lee, this college-age girl that goes missing, and then she ends up being found murdered, and sexual assault was part of the, the, the murder. And then when I started digging, there's all these articles that will tie him into some of these other crimes, two by DNA evidence, two by eyewitness accounts and then the rest just by the fact that it fits how he operates and the victimology and everything so and by all means this is not a complete list of his possible crimes i'm sure somewhere out there somebody probably has access to a lot of other missing persons because we do have some timeline some holes in the timeline here and we know he's not in prison because he's his dna is not on file at least he's not in prison for anything any felonies so as far as we know he's not caught committing any other sexual assaults or homicides during these these years that he's not offending but we also know he's a serial offender and sexual assault is one of those things that is very difficult obviously on the victims to to even report it's it's not hard to report i shouldn't say it's not hard it's not as hard to report that you were robbed or you you were carjacked or or some other violent crime was committed against you but as a woman it's very hard for you to talk about some of the stuff that happened to you when it's a sexual assault and know that there's a lot of people out there that will blame women i mean in the case of the liberty university cases where they're they're being blamed just because they wore pants instead of dresses and so women have to unfortunately deal with a lot of the negativity that comes along with reporting a sexual assault and then oftentimes in the end it becomes a he said she said like it did in the second case at liberty university and it is tough for prosecutors to prove a lack of consent in cases where one party says it's consensual and the other says it's not because 
you've got, again, we've talked about this, you've got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury in a trial that this sexual assault happened and it was not consensual. And when you've got alcohol involved or drugs involved, and again, I am not victim blaming here at all. I'm just pointing out the reality that it is difficult because a defense attorney is going to go into that trial and say, you have a impaired via drugs and or alcohol person who's your only witness telling you that the sex was not consensual. And then you've got my client here saying, you know, everything that night was consensual and she's just mad at him for whatever reason. And you have to, as a jury then, their job is to look at the evidence, not look at the people, not look at the, you know, the overall picture of the thing, I guess, in terms of how they feel about the case. It has to be the evidence. And if you don't have, and you often don't, in these one-on-one sexual encounters, any other evidence to, to point to the fact of whether it was consensual or not than, than the victim's words, I'm not saying that that shouldn't be enough to convict somebody, but oftentimes juries aren't going to find it to be enough when they're having to decide whether they're going to put somebody in prison just based on somebody's word. So do I think it's right? No. Do I wish there was a better way to, to prosecute sexual assaults in, in terms of consensual, non-consensual encounters? Absolutely. It's just the reality that we deal with is it is very difficult when all it comes down to in the end is a he said, she said. And I do think we're getting better about this. At least I hope we are as a society of, of not putting the blame on the, the victim by the clothing that she wore or the situation she put herself into. And I'm saying that with, with air quotes that you guys can't see, but these are some of the things that are that in the past historically have shifted blame of the sexual assault onto the woman extremely unfairly. So what I'm trying to say overall here is, is we have these major cases where women have gone missing and have not been found. And obviously those are going to jump out on the timeline, on the radar, as potential cases linked to Matthew that are going to not be able to be ignored. Whereas it's very possible that there are a whole lot of unreported sexual assaults or reported sexual assaults that were not investigated fully or couldn't be investigated fully or, or however you want to say it that are linked to him during this time period. But it also is worth noting that the first two times that he's known to have committed a sexual assault, he gets away with it the first time and the second time costs him, I'm guessing maybe he had a scholarship to this university, but it, it costs him his chance to play football and a scholarship to this university. And as we've talked about before, criminals learn from their past and a lot of the times when it comes to sexual assault victims then, or, or I should say sexual assault suspects then, when they've had somebody be able to sit there and point the finger at them and say, that's the person that sexually assaulted me, and they go away and do prison. Now, Matthew hasn't yet, but it, we've seen this in several cases. 
the next time they commit a sexual assault, their victim is not going to live to point the finger at them, to put them back into prison. And there's been, uh, I know the case of uh, Brittany Drexel, the guy had spent whatever it was, 21 years, 23 years, whatever it was in prison. He knew as soon as he sexually assaulted Brittany, he had to kill her, otherwise he was going back to jail. So what we're seeing here is a pattern of a couple confirmed sexual assaults involving Matthew, and then now we're starting to see women that he assaults go missing. And I I truly think the woman in Fairfax, Virginia, may have been killed had it not been for the passerby, and she would be, instead of being a surviving victim where DNA is collected and and able to be linked to him somewhere down the road, he would be another... um, Morgan Harrington, where DNA is collected, but it's it's post mortem after he's he's killed the rape victim. So, again, with this timeline, we don't have a full picture of everything that he did. We're just hitting the major cases that are being highlighted in the area of women roughly that age going missing in similar circumstances, and we do have the two crimes that he will eventually go on trial for which is the fairfax virginia sexual assault and the um, abduction sexual assault and killing of morgan harrington now unfortunately you are going to have some other cases too and i i even i put autumn wind day into this case where there's there's certain circumstances surrounding these cases where they don't get as much attention i know a lot of this came up in the Gabby Petito case, a case we'll cover at some point. Uh, it happens a lot when we have these high profile Nancy Grace, CNN covering type breaking news stories, the, the Watts family, and it's, it's to, or the uh, Lacey Peterson case uh, where you have the middle class upper middle class white female or white college female uh, goes missing and it's all over the news and then you've got cases like autumn winday who is listed as caucasian but possibly from a lower socioeconomic status and then cassandra morton who's a black female from a low income area when they go missing, there's not the big coverage. There's not the face being plastered all over the national news and, and everything. So you don't have as much. And when I try to research these cases, I can't find as much about these missing uh, women or whether or not they're linked to these cases because there isn't as much coverage. So we run into situations like that. And I know personally, uh, thankfully, I worked for a police department that had a low enough homicide rate to the point of maybe one a year and and often we'd go a few years without one that every homicide for us it didn't matter the the race and i would hope that even if we had more homicides it wouldn't we were making sure that we were finding justice for those victims but it does seem like there's a lot of cases and whether it be in in areas with i know native american women on reservations have a extraordinarily high violent crime rate against them that goes underreported and it it doesn't catch on the national attention that some of these other cases do and this is also the case of of women of color hispanic women black women that go missing from especially from lower uh, income families that their cases 
the, the, the family members, survivors of these of these victims feel like their cases don't get the coverage, don't get the police attention that these other cases do. And so when I'm covering a case like this and I see the discrepancies between cases like Morgan Harrington's and Hannah Graham's to these other cases that are mentioned in here only because of the the method of operation of the uh, suspect matching up to the circumstances around these victims going missing if and if it wasn't for that they these cases likely would not be discussed very often outside of the the police departments in which they occurred in it it does bring up some levels of frustration because i think if those cases had received as much attention as as harrington's and as graham's cases did there's a chance that that Mort, Morton's case or Win Day's case would have resolution as well. But there's nothing I can do, unfortunately, to change that other than just talk about these cases, bring them back to light. I know in by doing this research that in law enforcement agencies are looking at Morton's case, or at least they were after Graham's case, um, and looking at some of these other cases to see if they can find a link. And sometimes there isn't a link there. Sometimes there isn't the evidence to show. And sometimes they've got proof that the suspect like Matthew isn't involved, whether it be through DNA ruling him out or geographical location. Sometimes some of these criminals, not Matthew at this point, but some other criminals are in prison at the time of some of these other crimes that they could be involved in and then they get ruled out from. So... At this point, though, it looks like he's still a potential suspect for these cases, as far as I can tell. And hopefully someday there's some resolution for the families. And just a couple more things to talk about on this case is he gets that employment as a taxi driver in 2007. And this is, you know, there's that two-year period from the time he gets the taxi operation to both October 10th when Cassandra Morton goes missing and October 17th of 2009 when Morgan Harrington goes missing. That's seven days apart and in the area in which he's driving this taxi around. And eventually he will be linked to Morgan Harrington's murder. So we know that this is something that he's doing. It just, to me... This is why I believe that there are more crimes associated because I, I truly believe that he's involved in both the October 10th and October 17th abductions and disappearances of these women. We know he was for the October 17th. I believe he is also for October 10th. And if he's going to commit two abductions, rape, rape and murders in a week, I don't think that he's got his permit from 2007 to 2009 and he hasn't done this before so i don't know if we're ever gonna know that but it just seems that as soon as he's got that taxi license just like when he was in college he must have felt like he had the ability to get away with with this stuff because the college would cover it up for him now with his taxi license he's got a reason to be picking up alone vulnerable women in hours of the of the night where there isn't there aren't a lot of witnesses 
and maybe someday well, some families out there that have cases that I, I didn't even know to mention because I don't know they exist will get some closure if they're able to, to link them back to Matthew and we I mentioned it before it's it's almost not worth mentioning how obvious it is that Liberty University screwed this whole thing up from the beginning especially their police department back in that that summer of 2000 now again I'm not I wasn't there and I'm taking information from the lawsuit itself which is obviously going to only take one side of the issue but it's going to be hard for me to read the happenings of that case from the lawsuit and not speculate that there was major major issues with that investigation and how it was handled from the police department. Everything from, you know, as a 15-year-old girl, she's away at summer camp. She has no parents or guardians. There's supposed to be a den mother at the university or at the dorm that's supposed to kind of oversee these girls and kind of be that parent. And this is one reason why her parents even let her go to the summer camp was it was supposed to be at this religious safe college with a den mother watching over these girls and and all this kind of stuff and and they didn't even call her mother to let her know what was going on they just ran the entire investigation with this 15 year old girl and railroaded the investigation to the point in which they didn't have enough evidence to charge him and they were going to you know threaten her with filing a false police report unless she dropped the allegations and and it just it's so infuriating because if that had been handled properly, if that investigation had been been done correctly, and let's just say by a miracle he gets charged, even if he's able to get back out of prison at some point, he's a sex offender, he has to follow registry stuff, his DNA is going to be on file, and so at the very least, while I don't think it's going to stop him from reoffending. At the very least, when uh, the unknown woman is raped in 2005, if he was out of prison by then and had committed this rape, or basically the next rape, whether it be a rape or rape and murder that he commits and leaves DNA behind, they're going to know it's him and he's going right back to right back to prison. And there wouldn't be, at this point, at least three more victims, two of them deceased as a result of this monster and possibly so many more. So it's just one of those things that as soon as the ball was dropped back in 2000, not only was he not given the justice that he deserves, the victim isn't given the justice that she deserves, and nobody from that point on that he's going to come in contact with and commit crimes against all of it is is a result of of the lack of of dealing with it in, uh, the first time around so so we will pick up this timeline tomorrow uh going on from this last uh the homicide involving morgan harrington in 2009 there's going to be some other cases that are potentially linked to him and then we'll get to what happened to hannah graham the night that she went missing how Matthews is proven to be involved, and then kind of the the 
fallout from from all these other crimes that he's he is actually linked to and the outcome of the case in part two tomorrow so thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at trueblucrimeproductions at gmail.com you can also find me at trueblucrimeproductions on facebook and support me via patreon at Productions. that's it for today guys appreciate everybody stopping by to listen have a great day talk to you later goodbye